Hello and welcome to the Renewable Energy Podcast, where those with an interest in renewable energy, new and experienced, join together for news and knowledge about all things renewable. With me, Lynette Purvis, as your host, stay tuned for further episodes and head over to our website at www.renewableenergypodcast.com for the show notes. And why not leave your comments and suggestions in an iTunes review? If you're kind enough to give us five stars, we'll read out your review in future episodes. Now though, let's get started. Hello and welcome to the very first Renewable Energy Podcast. So what have we got coming up today? We've got an introduction to me as your host and to Roger who has kindly offered to join me today. We've got some interesting recent news articles, and we've got our topic of the week, an introduction to onshore wind. So I'm Lynette Purvis, I'm a renewable energy lawyer, and I'm based in Edinburgh, the capital city of Scotland. And what better place to talk about renewables than here in Scotland, where we have some of the greatest renewable energy resources in the world? So Roger... Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Roger Hamilton. I also have an interest in renewable energy. I don't work in the area, but I I do have an interest in the environment um, and reducing waste. And I'm very interested as as we go on this journey to find out a bit more, to do some research and to give my views as someone who doesn't work in the renewable industry, um, my view on renewable energy and what I learn. So that, you know, if, if you can relate to that, hopefully you'll get something from my story as part of this podcast. So who should listen to this podcast? Well, anyone really who has an interest in renewable energy, whether you work in renewable energy, whether there's stuff going on in your area and you're interested in that, or maybe someone who's at the start of the renewable energy career and wants to learn more, or if you're experienced in one particular renewable technology and you fancy learning more about the others. Stick around, we'll be covering them all. So first and foremost, why are renewables important? Well, renewables are now a major part of the energy mix. Not only do they reduce emissions to tackle climate change, but they also increase energy security and they support thousands of jobs. Renewables are especially important where I'm based here in Scotland because technologies such as wind, hydro and biomass provide the equivalent of around half of Scotland's electricity needs. This contribution is set to increase even further as planned projects are built and newer industries such as offshore wind and marine energy begin to develop. Here in Scotland, Our aim is by 2015 to have the equivalent of 50% of Scotland's electricity needs from renewables, and that is a target that we are already close to achieving. Scotland has also set an ambitious and challenging target to deliver at least the equivalent of 100% of its electricity needs from renewable sources by 2020. So today's focus is going to be on onshore wind and it's going to be an introduction to the basics, breaking it right down to its component parts. But before we do, cue the news theme. It's time for our renewable energy news section 
Today's three articles all come from the BBC News website, so thank you very much to the BBC for these. First of all, four huge offshore wind farms combining hundreds of turbines have been given planning permission off the east coast of Scotland. The developments in the Forth and Tay region could provide over 2.2 gigawatts of power, enough to power over 1.4 million homes every year. It is estimated that the four developments will produce carbon savings of 135 million tonnes of CO2 over their lifespans. Next up is the announcement of the opening of the Poo Powered Sewerage Works. A £34 million sewage works, powered by gas produced from human waste, has opened in Bradford. Yorkshire Water Site creates enough energy to power itself by using gas from the 30,000 tonnes of sludge it processes annually. The site generates enough electricity to power about 7,000 homes a year, and the company has agreed to export any surplus power to the national grid. The site works by breaking down waste into biogas, which is then burnt to produce heat and electricity. And next up is the news that a farm has unveiled the first floating solar panels. A floating solar panel project, believed to be the first in the UK, has opened in Berkshire. The collection of 800 panels, which are mounted on plastic floats, has been installed on a reservoir at Sheetlands Farm in Wargrave. And that's the end of our news roundup. So moving on to our main topic of the episode, an introduction to onshore wind. Now this topic was inspired by a recent trip to Whiteley Wind Farm in the west coast of Scotland, which is the UK's biggest wind farm with 215 turbines. I definitely recommend a visit if you're in the area. It's not too far off the beaten track, and it's got a great visitor centre which is free. And if you're willing to part with a few pounds, you can get the bus tour that takes you all around the wind farm, right up close and personal to the turbines. The smallest turbine at Whiteley is 110 metres tall, from the tip of the highest blade to the ground, and with the largest being a whopping 140 metres tall. So Roger, you were kind enough to come with me to Whiteley. Why don't you tell everyone what you thought? Whiteley was quite a, an eye-opening experience for me. I'd never been to a wind farm before. Um, didn't really fancy the drive all the way there, but well, you convinced me. So uh, we went to Whiteley and had a great day. It was a nice visitor centre. And um, it's just the scope of the, the, the wind farm itself is phenomenal. The size of the blades, the, the engineering, the construction, it's just incredible and the amount of electricity that one of those um, wind turbines can produce, it's just phenomenal. It's, my view is it's, it's good to diversify the, the way energy is produced. Um, I, I just found it an incredible, incredible experience. Um, so guys, it was pretty good. Um, learned quite a lot about peat bogs. So if you're ever uh, near peat bogs, don't go near them. They are remarkably deep. Uh, there's a story that the whole tractor got swamped, got stuck in, in a peat bog and just uh, disappeared out of sight. So uh, 
Yeah, I d didn't know about that. I didn't know about all the, the wildlife that, that lived out there as well. So it was quite, quite fascinating to find out about that. Really, really nice day. Special note should go to the, the lemon biscuits that we had. They were, uh, <laughs> they were pretty nice. Definitely worth going back for. Uh, also the, uh, the learning centre. Uh, felt like a bit of a child again, but um, really enjoyed it. Staff were very friendly as well, very welcoming, very informative and clearly they were all quite passionate about what they were doing as well, so that, that, that shone through. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed Whiteley, it was, it, was, it was good fun and I would like to go back and use the cycle paths and the running paths. Cycle paths and the, the running paths and walking paths have been developed as part of the, the wind farm um, in conjunction with the various uh, local authorities. They're really good. Uh, there's lots of people out walking their dogs, lots of doggies running around, lots of children running around kicking footballs. Um, just, you know, quite, quite good fun. Thank you very much, Roger. And it would seem that you didn't mind too much me dragging you along after all. So by way of background to onshore wind in Scotland, it currently makes up the largest proportion of Scottish renewable energy generation. It had a record year in 2013, producing over 11,000 gigawatt hours, which is the equivalent of around 30% of Scotland's electricity needs. Scotland is now home to over 4.5 gigawatts of installed onshore wind capacity, which is enough to power the equivalent of over 2.3 million homes. There are a further 3.7 gigawatts with planning permission, which is enough to power an extra 2 million homes. So, Lynette, as someone quite new to uh, renewable energy, I've got some questions that I quite like to ask. I think that's the, the format of how we're going to do it today. I'll ask the questions, you answer them. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's how it's going to work. So, question one, how, how's a wind farm built? How do they construct it? Well... Taking Whiteley as an example, it was once just a massive moorland and it is now home to 215 wind turbines, which is the biggest wind farm in the UK. First, more than 4 million tonnes of stone were extracted from the site to be used in the construction of roads and crane hard standings. Then the access roads were constructed and then the cables were laid in the trenches alongside those roads. The amount of cable used could cover the entire distance of the UK, right from Land's End to John O'Groats. So then the foundations were laid, on which the tower part of the turbines, which are made from steel, are erected in two parts, one on top of the other. That's when the hub of the turbine is added, and then the three blades, which are made from fibreglass, are added one by one. At Whiteley, the full turbines weigh about 360 tonnes each, and as mentioned, they range from 110 metres to 140 metres tall. So Roger, what's next? Next area we're going to talk about is how wind farms work. So Lynette, how, how, how does a wind farm work? Well, the turbines can have different power ratings. For example, at Whiteley, there is a mixture of wattages. 69 of the turbines are 3 megawatts, 140 turbines are 2.3 megawatts, and 6 of them are 1.67 megawatts. The higher the power rating of the turbine, 
the more power it can potentially produce. Turbines don't work at full power all of the time, however. We therefore also need to look at what are known as load factors. This is the ratio of actual energy produced in a given time compared against its full potential. Over the course of a year, the output from a single turbine will vary depending on wind speeds. A typical wind turbine is expected to generate approximately 20-40% to 40 of its theoretical maximum output over a year. The average load factor for wind turbines in Scotland from 2000 to 2012 was 27.9%. Now that might sound quite low, but it's important to note that no energy generation technology works at 100% capacity 100% of the time. And so, to put that in perspective, note that in 2012, the load factor for coal was 57.1%, for gas it was 30.4%, and for nuclear it was 70.1%. Next question's around how, the, 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 how it works with the wind. So, does it matter what way the wind's blowing, the speed of the wind, you know, can, can the turbine leverage that, generate power regardless of the direction of the wind? Well, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, it doesn't matter which way the wind blows. This is because the whole horizontal section can spin around depending on the wind direction. Regarding wind speeds, the turbines produce power over a wide range of speeds, beginning to generate electricity at between 3 and 4 metres per second, which is around 8 miles an hour, and they approach their maximum output at around 25 metres per second which is around 56 miles an hour. Generally speaking, the harder the wind is blowing, the more power will be produced from the turbines. Well, in that case, I guess it's no real surprise that onshore wind is so popular here in Scotland, as it is the windiest country in Europe and has around 25% of the whole continent's wind resources. So wind turbines can withstand and operate during gusts of wind, but where the wind speed is above 56 miles an hour for a prolonged period of time, usually around 10 minutes, the turbines typically shut down to protect themselves from damage. So clearly as it's a sort of newish technology, it's developing technology, there's costs involved. Is there some sort of government financial support or grants that are involved um, in, in renewable energy? Yes, that's exactly right. And you may have heard of renewable energy subsidies before. What happens is that in many parts of the world, including the UK, renewable energy is given government financial support. This serves to level the playing field for renewables and more conventional technologies, counterbalancing the fact that renewable technologies are newer and more innovative and are therefore more expensive to build. So that begs the question, should we be subsidising renewable energy in this way? The UK Energy Secretary, Ed Davey, definitely seems to think so. Indeed, he has said that without this investment, energy security would be jeopardised as the UK would become ever more dependent on oil and gas, and energy bills in the future would be increasingly subject to high and volatile fossil fuel prices. So what form does this governmental financial support take? There are different systems across the world, but here in the UK it is the Renewables Obligation, 
also known as the RO, which is the current main financial support mechanism for investment in renewable energy. The way it works is that operators of renewable energy are under an obligation to obtain a certain number of renewable obligation certificates, also known as ROCs, and these ROCs are issued to operators of renewable energy generating stations each time they generate a certain amount of electricity from renewable energy. Not all renewable energy developments in the UK use ROCs, however. Smaller scale renewable developments, which are those under 5 megawatts, including wind, are instead generally supported by the system known as the feed-in tariff, also known as FITS. Under this scheme, energy generators are paid a set amount for each unit of electricity they generate, depending on factors such as the size of the system and the type of technology. The UK system is changing, however, and so rocks and FITS aren't here to stay. Changes to financial support for renewable energy are currently being finalised by the UK government under what is known as the Electricity Market Reform Process, or EMR. The scheme will be called a feed-in tariff with a contract for difference, also known as CFDs. They are very different to the current scheme, and we will no doubt be covering them in detail in a future episode. Just expanding on that a wee bit more, how does this financial support cost to the individual household? How, how does that work? Well, that's a very good question, and one that I'm sure that a lot of people are interested in knowing the answer to. In Scotland, the cost of the RO system to the average household bill in 2013 was £30, while the cost for the FIT system was £7, the equivalent of around 71 pence per week when combined. It is important to put this in context, however, with support for other parts of the energy industry. For instance, it is estimated that in 2011, Tax breaks and financial support for coal, oil and gas in the UK totaled over £4.2 billion. So Roger, it's over to you for the next one. Just to mix it up, I'm going to ask the question, but I'm also going to answer it this time. When I started looking into renewable energy, um, I really wondered about wind power. Um, you know, love it or hate it. Uh, does wind power cut carbon dioxide emissions? Is that's one of the, the key things that, that we're looking at today. So wind power is clean, renewable, doesn't produce uh, any greenhouse gas emissions when it generates electricity. Um, if you want to look at some stats, so in 2012, uh, renewable energy displaced about 10 million tonnes of carbon dioxide. So just, just to bring that to life a bit, um, that's 3.3 million cars running per year. That's quite quite a big statistic, um, and that's quite a big increase, 24% on the 8.3 million tonnes of carbon dioxide in 2011. So that's nearly a million more cars is saving in carbon dioxide emissions. Now that's all very well, but as with any industrial development, constructing a wind farm has an associated carbon impact through manufacturing, transportation and construction. To assess this, a carbon calculator has been developed, which presents a methodology for calculating how long a wind farm development will take to pay back the carbon created during its construction, and also therefore, for how long the wind farm will operate making direct carbon savings during its expected lifetime. The average payback time for a wind farm is estimated to be between 3 and 10 months, 
while over its lifetime, a wind farm is also expected to generate at least 20 to 25 times the energy used in its manufacture, installation, operation and eventual decommissioning. So next one's around public perception. In preparation for this, I spoke to a few people that work around this and, and it's a bit of a mixture about who's for and who's against it. I have comments like, you know, really like it, you know, provides clean energy. I've also had comments of blight in the landscape. So what, what, what do you think is the public perception of wind power? It's definitely one we, you know, we should talk about and explore. Well, yes, you are absolutely right to point out that they are not everybody's cup of tea. But that said, a 2014 poll commissioned by the Department of Energy and Climate Change, known for short as DEC, found that 70% of people said that they support the development of onshore wind, the highest figure since the poll began in 2012. The same survey shows that support for onshore wind is greater than both nuclear and shale gas. Another poll in 2013 by YouGov suggested that more than two-thirds of respondents said that their decision to visit an area of Scotland would not be affected by the presence of a wind farm. Indeed, wind farms are also tourist attractions in their own right. The visitor centre at Whiteley Wind Farm has had more than 350,000 visitors since it opened in 2009 with tens of thousands more estimated to have used the paths and cycle tracks that we mentioned have been built throughout the site. So Roger, what's our next question? Thinking about the environment next, what, how are the potential effects of wind farms managed? How do we make sure that they don't impact the environment in a negative way? What, what do we do about bird life and wildlife? Well, wind farms can have potential negative effects and these are managed primarily through the planning process. The extent of the interaction between wind farms, wildlife and natural habitats varies from site to site, and so the industry has worked with key stakeholders to produce good practice guidance to help promote responsible siting and design of wind farms. Environmental considerations, and considerations such as noise, are integral parts of the planning process and only wind farms deemed acceptable by relevant planning authorities, such as local authorities or the government, are given planning permission. So Roger, I think we've time for one more question. Off you go. So wind farms are built, huge things, massive, massive things, honestly. Go to a wind farm, are huge. How, they, how long do they last? How are they designed to last? And, and what happens you know, once they've reached their expiry date? What, what happens then? The design and quality of turbine manufacturing is improving all the time, but generally, individual wind turbines are built to last more than 20 years if they are maintained properly. Following the operational stage of a wind farm development, there are three options available. First, the site can be repowered, which could increase its capacity and efficiency, potentially leading to fewer turbines. Or, if the turbines are still in good condition, the site can resubmit to be reconsented for a further operational stage with no changes to the existing infrastructure. If neither of those options are available, the site can be decommissioned in line with a decommissioning plan which has been pre-agreed with the relevant planning authority. Now it's obviously important that this is done right, and it is government policy here in Scotland that wind farm developers must satisfy the relevant planning authority that they have a suitable and robust plan often including a financial bond being put in place from day one, 
for decommissioning the wind farm and restoring the land to its former condition. And if they can't do that, then it won't get planning permission in the first place. So there you have it, the end of episode one of the Renewable Energy podcast. Special thanks go to the BBC for the news articles, to Scottish Renewables for the very helpful information on their website, especially their publication called An Introduction to Onshore Wind, which um, gave me a lot of the facts and figures for this podcast. And also, thank you very much to Roger for all your help. And to all of you for listening. We hope to see you next time. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Renewable Energy Podcast, the home of news and knowledge about all things renewable. Don't forget to stay tuned for further episodes and to head over to our website www.renewableenergypodcast.com for the show notes. And we'd love you to leave your comments and suggestions in an iTunes review. Remember that if you're kind enough to give us five stars, we'll read out your review in future episodes. That's all for today though, so bye for now and see you next time.